Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. There is a proposal, a bipartisan proposal, in the state legislature to make it easier to build affordable housing by adjusting the urban growth boundaries. It's sponsored by Representative Cindy Jacobson. And tell me how this would change the, the status quo, Representative Jacobson. Thank you. Yeah. House Bill 1402. Um, what it is, is we have these urban growth boundaries where we are committed to densify and build more housing close to transit and all those things. And if there are places inside the urban growth boundaries that are parks, that are steep slopes, that are sensitive areas or floodplains or something, we need to be able to pull that area out and put that on, extend our urban growth boundaries to put in that more amount of buildable land on the outside to make up for those non-usable areas. So what you're saying, there are some parcels of land within this urban growth boundary, which you're never going to have any kind of development on them. Right. No. Because no, just, it's just it's just not worth it. So you want to add is it, now? Is this the first time that the the uh, urban growth act has been changed? Oh, I'm sure not. We've had it since 1990. I think it's probably time to think about just scrapping it and starting over. The median home prices in states and GMA areas uh, are two to four times the median home prices in non-GMA areas in this country. So we need to maybe think about accomplishing our goals using some different mechanisms because it's really important that people are able to own homes. It's a, it's a method of building generational wealth. Um, it's just the American dream and we are making it too high priced. GMA being the growth management act. So is it, so yeah. the idea is that if you put more land out there for development, that should overall reduce the the cost of building a new home. Yeah, because, uh, you know, supply. We'll, we get more supply of land, and then we are able to get more affordable housing. And that's what, we have another bill out there that kind of got dropped along with this, 1401, and that one would just be permissive and allow cities, counties to have sort of a streamlined process for uh, affordable housing. And that uh, that is under 1,800 square feet, and that would decrease the amount of time it takes to get these permits because right now it can take 40 months from start to finish on a home. And a lot of that is, is, you know, delays because of getting the proper approvals and things. So if we streamline that, that could help and that could help make the housing more affordable. When anybody says affordable housing, I, I love to ask for a definition because I think we all have different ideas of what's affordable. So for you, if these bills pass and, and you have it your way, how much will these homes be? It, you know, I can't say. And these are only a part. We have a suite of legislation that we're pro- proposing, and a lot of it is bipartisan supported. You know, I'm in the minority party. If I don't have uh, support from the majority party. I, I got nothing. We have a suite of bills to try to look at the supply side of things and try to get those regulations down and get people into homes. Is, is there so, a range that you think would be affordable housing? You know, they've got definitions, which I can't quote you about area median income. And I think it's like 80% of the area median income and below um, in some definitions. But what it means to me is that families who are working can afford to get into housing and build that 
generational wealth. It, it's it's important. Yeah, I just would love more of a definition of affordable because uh, for one person it's you know three hundred thousand, for the next it's six hundred, and for the other it's one hundred and fifty. So maybe we should narrow that down. Now, Dave and I have been exploring an interesting concept too, uh, in trying to find some real support behind what what Finland and Helsinki is doing, which is you know taking office buildings and turning them into residential housing. Is anything coming down the pipeline uh, in the legislature for that? Um, not that I've seen, but I don't see everything. I'm not on the housing committee. I would look at any solutions and I would look at them with an eye toward how do we decrease regulations and allow our private sector and our nonprofit partners to just build these homes in as reasonable of a fashion as possible, while still making sure that our cities get their impact fees that they need for good schools and and that sort of thing. Regulations make up 25 to 30% of the cost of a new home. And the 30% side is more uh, multifamily having an even higher cost of regulations. So um, we just need to get out of the way. On your bill to streamline regulations, that's basically what it says that uh, counties and cities have the option of creating a a low-cost, expedited permit process for developing these additional homes, but you don't require them to do that. I mean, there there are going to be some cities that say, we don't want to have cheaper housing in our neighborhoods, and and they're going to say, no. Don't you, at some point, don't you have to mandate that every community build its fair share of affordable housing? Well, we sometimes, I think, maybe need to send some mandates down from on high, but we also have to be respectful of the localities. I know in Puyallup, when I was on the city council, we were looking hard, and I I haven't followed the council, so I don't know if this got through, but we were looking really hard at a, a thing just like this, a sort of a fast track, so that our developers could have some certainty about what their permitting times could be, because, you know, time is money when they're borrowing money on a, a property. What do you think about uh, measures like like the governor has suggested that would basically mandate higher density housing in these uh, single family zones? Um, I'm looking at at some of those um, where we're encouraging middle housing by allowing the zoning for the sixplexes. These are not, you know, ugly buildings that don't follow the design standards of the city. They're going to fit into our neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and that would be one way I think, and I think it has broad bipartisan support of getting more housing in where we need it because by all accounts we're short of housing. I was looking last night, 81,000, one study said, 225,000 upgrowth reported, 140,000. So somewhere in there, we're short a lot of housing and we need to, to do something about it so that people can achieve home ownership and build their wealth and be part of the middle class. We're talking to Representative Cindy Jacobson uh, about her bills that she's hoping to get passed that should help with affordable housing, she says. Now, I also have heard you mention twice now bipartisan support. And boy, is that music to my ears, especially looking at the Congress right now. What is it like down there in Olympia currently? Well, I'm having a happy time because I never did get to go down there. So I'm anxious to work in a bipartisan fashion. I'm anxious to meet my colleagues and recognize their faces, not on Zoom. Um, and I, I would like us to work together on this housing thing. I, I think there's some proposals that I don't like. Which ones? We're not going to have rent control uh. that, that does anything to help anybody because if we have rent control, we're going to lose our, our, providers of of rentals and they'll move to other states or get out of that business. So I think we need to make sure that what we do doesn't increase costs for housing accidentally and intended ways. I think that we need to make 
sure what we do pencils out and what we do makes logical sense. Um, but some of these things do make logical sense, and I hope we can all get behind them. Representative Cindy Jacobson putting together a couple of bills that uh, are supposed to help create more affordable housing. Representative Jacobson, thank you very much. Thanks for shining the light. Thank you. Choke points. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. The Washington Department of Transportation is back to pre-COVID staffing levels. But now the challenge is to keep those hires from leaving. Let's go to Chris. There are now more than 7,100 people working for the Washington State Department of Transportation. That's the highest level since 2019 and the COVID pandemic. You might remember that 402 Washington employees lost their jobs over the governor's vaccine mandate, which coupled with retirements and other lost employees really put the agency well below its needs. And that lack of employees put a damper on Washington's ability to provide key services like the ferries and road maintenance and repair. Deputy Secretary Amy Scarton sat before the Senate Transportation Committee last week to highlight the return to 2019 staffing levels. In 2022, we've hired in the ferry system more than 233 employees. This is more than 10% of the workforce. So the turnover is that high. That also makes up for more than the 132 jobs lost to the vaccine mandate. But it also takes time to get those new ferry employees up to speed and actually serving on the boats. And there has been long criticism that the ferry service doesn't do enough to help those new hires work their way up the chain of command to get promoted. And then they leave for greener pastures. That's something that Scarton says is being addressed. We have created six new training programs tailored to meet the needs of new staff and existing staff. And we're looking at developing two more. Now, some of these we're talking about. How do you take a sailor and promote them up into the officer ranks? How do you take an oiler, promote them up into the officer ranks in the engine room to be an engineer? But of course, the largest issue facing the ferry service when it comes to employees and WashDOT in general is the low pay and benefits compared to the private sector. WashDOT Human Resources Director Jeff Pelton told senators that the pay gap is real. Our exit interview data indicates that over 40% of those departing the agency in this category do so for higher pay. This forces us back to a market condition to re-recruit for their replacement and likely more training. Check out some of the numbers that they put out. State ferry workers get paid about 26% below the private sector. Civil engineers that work and design our roads also about 26% below market. Highway maintenance workers, 13% less than their private sector colleagues. It's very hard for us to keep pace with the private salaries and the signing bonuses that several other organizations are offering. But what we do have to offer is a wonderful culture, a great strategic plan, and people who are really dedicated to public service. Yeah, that sounds great. But pay me. That's what it really comes down to, and that's what we've heard for years. Uh, so it sounds like Washdoc can get people in the door, but it has a hard time keeping them because they can find more money faster somewhere else. Uh, and I don't know how you fix that other than to change the pay scales and to make uh, to give them more money. What, what's the? There are no private ferries are there except for the Black Ball ferry. That so, is correct. So what? I mean, what are we comparing it to? Uh, well, cargo ships? Or well, yeah, that? basically anything else in the maritime industry, running a tug, you know, working in the engine room of a, of a navy, you know, of a if if you're a contractor working on a Navy ship, like uh, one of our good friends who uh, commutes back and forth to Houston every week, uh, who listens to the show to work on his ship there because it's a heck of a lot. Well, that's more... exactly what I would expect. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the ferry is you get to go home every night. If Correct. You're, if you're on a cargo ship, I mean, you're gone for days or yeah, weeks. But if you're providing for a family, you're going to take the job yeah. that pays it's you the so more. That, and that's the conundrum is like, you know, because as they said, we offer a great spot. You get to come home and live in Puget Sound. Yeah. Well, you know, at some point that's great. But if you're making 26 percent less the market and it takes you 50 
15 years to become a captain when there are other faster tracks. And you can only afford a home, tracks. so you have to commute two hours to get there. So, so there's some, you know, so they've got some legitimate issues when yeah. it comes to pay. It sounds like people are now starting to get interested. Obviously, one of the things we talked about when I went to the that academy that is, is training these folks is, you know, tr- you know, diversity is a big buzzword and it comes with, it's loaded for, you know, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics, women are not generally well represented in this trade. And so they're trying to find ways to reach out to those communities for people who are like, hey, this might be a good option. They're trying to find, uh, as one of the WashDOT people said last week uh, or last year when I was talking to them, you know, the maritime industry is very white for whatever, you know, good or for bad, whatever. But they're trying to reach into other places to make this uh, more well, post more the popular. salaries. I mean, I was looking up the salaries. Bridge engineer, $114,000 a year. Yeah. That's not chicken feed. No, not at all. I mean, it's not like they're not making good money. They can make good money. It's just that compared to the private sector where you might get better signing bonuses, benefits, things like that, or maybe less time to move up the ladder, uh, it, it's hard to retain them, especially if you've got a young family, you've yeah. got you know, expenses. Trying I'm not to, sure if they're starting here. at 114. Um, no, they're not starting at yeah. that, but I mean that you can there's there's potential there. So, and, and by the way, just one thing really quickly for those of us who use the ferries or people who use the ferries, uh, we're hoping to be back to pre-pandemic service levels sometime this summer uh, as they're continuing Hopefully. to ramp back up and get people on those boats. Uh, of course, we were really close to getting the Edmund Kingston run back to two boats. They were doing the trials there. Then the Puyallup hit a log and knocked its propeller out. So it's out for another couple of weeks. So that kind of knocked the trials out for a little bit. But uh, so hopefully later this summer we'll be back to what we got used to. And, uh, you know, those delays and the you know the lack of crew cancellations and things will uh, be more, I guess, infrequent than they've really become. Hope they got that log. Yeah. Well, uh, I believe the file, the log has been charged uh, it, uh, civilly. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of the them with this King Tide. Well, the King Tide, yeah, there's a ton out there. And just so. quickly before traffic, did you find anything out about the captain who crashed that boat? We're still waiting. It's been months. Uh, we're still waiting for the U.S. Coast Guard report on on that, on the Vashon run where uh, the, we, they ran into the dock there and knocked the dolphin out. And uh, So, yeah, we still don't know. We're waiting. Uh, I've been checking in with the Coast Guard periodically to get an update on exactly what they say I, I, happened I, there. I think they know. We're just not being told. Right. Well, I think they have a pretty good idea, <laughs> yeah. too. You don't miss the dock that badly. Yeah. Without some issue, without something going wrong. Let's take you now to the legislature, which is discussing sentencing reform. There are some in Olympia who think that the current sentencing guidelines are too harsh. Are they? Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, set this up for us. Well, it's a big issue here, and that's why I want to devote my time to this, because it's it's going to impact the judicial system if these bills go through in a big-time way. So the state Supreme Court, and I'm oversimplifying it here, is basically saying a lot of the sentences handed down by judges are too harsh, especially if they involved uh, juveniles re- uh, juvenile record when the person becomes an adult and commits a crime and that now so these bills would basically eliminate anything that you did as a juvenile and it could not be factored into the sentencing as an adult um and this could affect more than 8000 cases say the judges uh the ACLU say it's more like 1200 uh David representative David Hackney is the bill's primary sponsor and says the youth should not be penalized for being have bad judgment when they're a youth. We're taking into account the lack of, of judgment and self-control that you have as a youth. And we're giving people a fresh start in adult court. 
And he says there's a big difference between juvenile court and adult court. What we're talking about here are dispositions in juvenile court, dispositions where you don't have the same due process protections as you do in criminal court because juvenile court is not a criminal proceeding. It's a quasi-criminal proceeding. You're found to be involved, not guilty. And there's, I mean, you and I would just say, well, the kid's convicted of a crime. No, you can't be used. You can't use the word convicted. It's disposition. They're involved rather than sentenced. You know, so it's a whole different structure in juvenile court. And therefore, it's treated differently already. So one of the guys who would be affected by this actually testified from his prison cell at the Monroe Penitentiary, Christopher Blackwell. Uh, says his juvenile record affected uh, the sentencing when he killed, he's accused of killing and convicted of killing a 17-year-old as an adult. It started with a simple drug possession, and from that point, I remained connected to the system until I received a 45-year sentence at the age of 22. This created an institutional trap, pushing my life towards one inevitable outcome, a life of incarceration. So when I did some research on Christopher Blackwell, I found out something interesting that while he was in prison, he married a a legal representative and uh, she ended up testifying at the same hearing, but never told the lawmakers there that she was his wife. (laughs) Chelsea Moore is from the ACLU of Washington and says the sentencings involving criminal crime are discriminatory. We found that black people, indigenous people, and Latino people were much more likely to have been automatically sentenced to longer sentences because of childhood offenses. Further, people of color had on average more juvenile points than their white counterparts, leading to racial disparities in sentencing. Now you have the other side of the coin is you have James McMahon of the Sheriff and Police Chiefs Association of Washington and says the judges should not ignore a person's past. This bill ignores somebody who commits a pattern of offenses over a number of years. Hmm. And so, so do we, is there any objective research on this? Do we are there states that have uh, basically done the same thing and sealed the juvenile records only to find that the uh, the suspect hasn't changed his ways as an adult. Well, I think there has been a lot of research about juvenile crime and whether or not when they were the state of their minds when they're 15, 16, 17 years old, mm-hmm. and that's going to come up in another bill in just a second, um, that their state of mind is different, that you can't really accuse, go after them for an adult crime. And, and what uh, James McMahon was pointing out is that a lot of the crimes that the juveniles are disposed or found involved in are actually felonies. I mean, they're armed robbery, assault. These are serious crimes, but they're treated differently as as in juvenile court. And he says, you just can't ignore that. And that, that, that we have to penalize some of them because it's going to grow. But you heard what Blackwell said. He says, once I got into this life of crime, by the time I'm 22, I'm serving a 45-year sentence because uh, he's basically saying the system didn't help him that much. Now, in terms of the state's answer, yes. Now, the Washington judges, Judge Sean O'Donnell from this King County Superior Court, testified that only two states have done something similar, whereas um, the ACLU testified a majority of states have done this. So they use their disagreement about what the facts are. Yeah, uh, <laughs> between the judges and the ACLU. Okay, what about now, sentencing minors to life in prison? Now, this is another part of it. Same hearing. Um, this is basically saying that aggravated 
aggravated first degree murder is the most serious crime this state has. That's by everyone agrees on that. So when a person, a juvenile, is convicted of aggravated uh, murder, they should not be sentenced to life in prison because of their age. And this is all based on a state supreme court ruling. Here in our state, it says, you know, those sentences are too harsh. So Roger Goodman explains what the change would be. Under this bill, an individual committing aggravated murder between the ages 18, 19, or 20 could receive a life sentence uh, if uh, youthfulness is not demonstrated by the defendant. But if youthfulness is demonstrated sufficiently, the court would have the discretion to order 25 years to life. Did you hear the key word in there? Youthfulness. Youthfulness, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of those terms like reasonable in courts, youthfulness. Well, what does he goes on to say, what does youthfulness mean in the context of these changes? If you're 16 or 17, you're presumed to be youthful and life is not constitutional. But if you're 18, 19, or 20, the defense has to demonstrate youthfulness. Otherwise, it would be a life sentence. And so there it is, is that. The way this law would be changed is it lightens up the, the sentencing for first-degree aggravated murder. Um, but if you're a 20, 18, 19, 20-year-old, if your defense attorney can prove that you just didn't have the mind of a 20-year-old, maybe of a 14, 15... Uh, on a lot of people's minds, we hear a lot about recidivists who get a slap on the wrist and commit the crime again. What I, what I never hear is whether the system is actually uh, converting people from criminals to uh, to upstanding citizens. Do we have any data on that, whether this sentencing is just to house people, or are we preparing them for when they are released back into society? Yeah, I don't have a good answer for you, Dave, because I haven't been well-versed on all that research. Uh, I, it is out there. But I think the overall feeling here among the legislators, and I think you've been seeing this in Olympia for the last couple of years, is lightening up everything, hmm. um, is is making the sentences not as harsh, especially if they're younger, giving people more chances to avoid a long prison term and just sit there and rot in a prison for the rest of their Couldn't life. could that backfire, though, if the word gets out, hey, if you're a kid, you get off. Well, I mean, they're, not, they're not, still not booking people in jail for property crimes. Uh, so, and COVID's over, and they always had the COVID excuse. So, yeah. there's just this, there's this feeling, and it's just happening right now. But let me just ask one more, tell you about one more thing: why the judges think this is incredibly hard. This what they say is going to bring more than eight thousand cases before them. They're already dealing with years of backlog of cases. They have to go back and resentence every single case, hmm. every single one. And they just don't have the manpower or the money to do it. Wow. Matt Markovich covering the legislature for us this year. Matt, thank you very much. You're welcome, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. In Geraldine, Alabama, a beloved Air Force veteran and longtime farmer passed away. And that's when the town learned his real story. He was really having a ripple effect on our community, and he had no idea. That's Brooke Walker, a pharmacist in town. She tells ABC News that the late Hody Childress would hand her money, but not to pay for his own prescriptions. He wanted to pay for those who couldn't, and he did it for years. He handed me a bill, and it was folded up. I couldn't see what it was. He just said, the next time that happens, I want you to use this um, to help them out. And I want it to be anonymous. I don't want to know who you use it for. 
And I don't want them to know my name. I just want you to tell them that this is a blessing from God. He died on New Year's Day and almost took it secret with him, only revealing it to his children shortly before he died. They also spoke to ABC News. It wasn't surprising because they, there's more to daddy than this one story. But daddy done a lot for everybody. It's made us want to carry on what he's been doing. Hody's children say the way their father lived makes them want to be better people, too. 748, and now joining us from the Gia Nursley Show, which starts at 9 o'clock. G. Scott, I hear you tuned into uh, Dr. Cohen yesterday. You had a discussion of uh, intermittent fasting. I'm always, I, I like the intro for Dr. Cohen. Yeah. Can I, can I get one? Page and G. Scott. Mm-hmm. You Paging. know who that is? Who? Hannah Scott. That's Hannah Scott, yeah. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. That's pretty nice. We're all voiceover actors, yeah, aren't we? Uh, last name Scott. Um, okay. <laughs> the intermittent fasting. Uh, I'm down 20 pounds. What? 20 pounds. I'm I thought you were looking since, skins. Since huh? when? Over how uh, long Since mid-December. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That's how pretty that fast. How does that feel? So, um, I... It doesn't feel any different. My wife, uh, yes, uh, on Saturday, or yeah, on Saturday we were leaving the gym, and I was she was already in the car, and I came out, and when I get to the car, she was like, "I finally see it now. You have lost some weight." <laughs> Anyways, um, so here's the intermittent fasting. I love the discussion that you guys had with Dr. Cohen. I thought it was absolutely legit. I don't. I personally don't believe that, oh, if you fast for a uh, 16 hours or 20 hours a day, it's going to make your body lose weight more. I don't believe that. I actually believe that the intermittent fasting is like guardrails at the bowling alley, mm-hmm. right? just to keep you safe. Example, every day usually here at, at Cairo, pulling the curtains back, there's sometimes some goodies oh, out always. there, right? Yeah. There's some, on Fridays, there's the donuts, and you know, and then there's Your a co-host, little... Your co-host, the perpetrator <laughs> of the donuts. Right? Uh, yesterday, there was pizza, and somebody brought some banana bread. By the way, banana bread is my favorite. Oh. Chocolate chips so, are no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put some chocolate chips oh, in there. See, I'm yes, yes. Chocolate chips, but... So what ends up happening is, for me, I, ooh, I don't, just a little piece here, or half a donut there and you know that so have a little bit of that and then later on a little snack here and a snack there oh you're also going to eat your lunch you're going to eat your dinner and i find myself snacking a lot so for me right now me doing the 20 hours of fast a day and i have a four-hour window between four o'clock and eight o'clock i have found myself snacking way less because when i get ready to eat and during my window I'm not going to spend that time eating some chips. No. You know, no. See, I would. <laughs> no. No, I need I need I need food. So and I've been making sure like my meals aren't like dumb meals, right? Like mm-hmm. they've been actually meals with substance and I'm trying to make sure I get my vegetables inside of me. You got kale, huh? And, oh, for sure. And got that arugula, bro. Mm-hmm. Got to have that. Ooh, peppery. Yeah. I love that. Arugula. Pepper, right? Yeah. I love that. I sponsored so, a child in arugula. Oh, did you? Famous line from Will and Grace. No, it's, <laughs> there's no country named arugula. Look here. That's from Will, the show Will and Grace. <laughs> Will and Grace, Friends, uh, Seinfeld. Don't do those with me. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess why. Nope. <laughs> so the so the intermittent fasting for me is is me needing to control my eating, and these guardrails mm-hmm. uh, has been good for me. And I can't speak to, for others. You've been able to maintain that discipline just four from four to eight. That's the four, only time you eat. Four to eight. P.M. Yes. 
Yes, 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. So you, you wake up and you don't eat anything? No. What Do you drink coffee? I, I stop yeah, drinking right. coffee. You're done, you're done with coffee? Yeah. You're done oh. with sugar? Did you say sugar too? No, 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 I mean, sure. I, I'm not... I'm not Discipline, but I'm not eating as bad. Do you think it's because of the time of day or because of the way it simply limits the amount you eat? I think it. I think it's just to guardrails. Yeah. I think it. I, I think that. I can't speak for anybody else. Me, I had a snacking problem. Mm-hmm. Right, like that was my my biggest problem. And the thing is, is I go to the gym five days a week. Like how you, bruh, How you go into the gym five days a week yeah. and, and and you just you you're not in the greatest shape as you used to be? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm like I'm. It tired. always kind of canceled it out. Yeah, you know? yeah. You just you're just going to the gym to maintain. Yeah. And so finally, I'm like I'm done with just this whole maintaining thing. My goal is to lose uh, forty pounds, right? And, and so how many have you lost? So Twenty. Far? Wow, yeah. that's pretty. And good. then what? You go back to just. No, I I I, I got to I, I got to you got to maintain it, yeah. right? So I got to okay. continue to eat the right way. And that's another thing. I, I also stopped drinking alcohol. That's what it was. Yeah. It wasn't sugar. It was alcohol, I, coffee, and now you're fasting. Yeah. Yeah. And and it sounds like a lot, but it's really not, right? I, I think the alcohol. I think that there's we, there's hidden sugars, of course, there's inside of the of alcohol, alcohol. A lot of calories there, and also there's a lot of Bad behavior, eating wise, that comes from drinking alcohol. Okay, I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Late night. I mean, come on now. Your, your childhood comes out like, why in the world are you having a beverage at seven Saturday night at ten o'clock p.m.? All of a sudden, you got Jack in the box on the mind. <laughs> <laughs> Was it rough though at first? That's what I want to know. I feel like yes, any time, like how long did it take before you could actually be happy about again? A, about, about a week. Oh, a week. It oh, took a week. That's I, not too bad. I was, no, yeah, I was, bad. I was struggling, and and what with my biggest struggle is Friday and Saturday nights, right? Because for some reason, your your mind tells you that, oh, long work week, you deserve it, mm-hmm. and get you that pizza or get you some sushi, you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. man. Well, I congratulations. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's really <laughs> impressive. Thank you. I, I want to get down to Dave's size. Can you see me, <laughs> Dave, raw size? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, you have really thinned out. What do you think, what do you think Dave Ross size is? How much do you think he weighs? Oh, hmm. Day? Buck 50. Buck 47 and a half. Very close. 150, yeah. I weigh the same amount as you. Sorry. This is incredible. Day, Yeah, we could wrestle each other. <laughs> Bro, how you got a deep voice like that and weigh 150? <laughs> that is crazy. All the weight <laughs> isn't as long as that's it. <laughs> It is so fifty. So are you one fifty, fam? What's that? Are you one fifty? That's one of my thighs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Muscle weighs more that. than fat, but I got a lot of fat too. <laughs> and on Tuesday mornings, we go to Washington D.C. and New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold, who's also a keen observer of the media. And of course, the news is uh, full of mass shootings this morning, which we define as anytime four people are shot in a single incident. That's the current definition, right? I think that's right. Okay, so the question always comes up: Is this the is this the incident that finally does it? And uh, my opinion on that is, you know, look if. Uh, if uh, uh, Connecticut and uh, Uvalde weren't enough to bring some kind of meaningful reform, uh, you know, something like this is is not going to do it. What, what I'm thinking now is, since we're hearing about one in Yakima, is whether just reporting on this creates 
copycat shootings. What do you think? Oh, I, I wonder about that. I mean, you you can't. You know, these things are too big to not report on. You do worry that you know that will create copycats. And um, you know, there was some evidence like the Sandy Hook shooter had sort of paid attention to past coverage of mass past mass shootings. The depressing thing is. I feel like these things provide so little notoriety now. I mean, I think we all knew the names of the guys who were the shooters at Columbine, but there's been these things happen so often now in so many places that I feel like, you know, you're not at all assured of people knowing your name if you do something horrible like this. There'll just be another one the next week. So, yeah. you know, if if the people want notoriety, I feel like that, you know, there's so many people doing it that, that it's not going to work anymore. Well, and, and, and a lot of this, I, I try to only mention the name if it's absolutely necessary in an attempt to, you know, play some small part in that. But sometimes it's not for notoriety. Sometimes it's just angry people who decide to solve their beef with a gun. And I don't know how you defend against that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the idea that one shooting is going to make a mass change, uh, you know, I think we're beyond that. You know, there there have been times in American history when that happened, but I think now, you know, sort of the, the I think people have realized that if there's going to be a change in gun policy, it's going to come from a lot of organizing and changing people's minds and working over the long term. These things are so common now that, even a shooting at a school like in Uvalde or Newtown, you know, doesn't it doesn't shock people enough to change out of their sort of settled settled viewpoints. And I also noticed that the the go to line after the dance hall shooting was at least initially was here's another example of Asian hate, but the shooter was Asian, so it, it clearly uh, wasn't that. And I, I don't know, I just I just think we have. Um, We've lost perspective somehow. I, I went and checked, you know, just to, for comparison's sake, and Chicago had a bunch of shootings over the weekend. I think there were something like seven there, and New York had a bunch of shootings over the weekend. I think four people died there. We, it's it's hard to create a, a standard, what, rule for which shootings we decide are significant and which ones we ignore. That's right. I mean, and I think that the two shootings in California, the one at the dance hall shooting in Monterey and the one that or Monterey Park and then the one that happened yesterday in Half Moon Bay, California, both involved people. One guy was in, was 67. One guy was 71, I yeah. think. And both perpetrators allegedly Asian. You know, it, it's, the, you know, the, the sort of stereotype we had that it was a young, angry white man. Right. Obviously, this problem is much bigger than that. It's, you know, the, the, the shooters are much more varied than that. Yeah. And uh, I guess neither one had significant criminal records. So I guess I, I'm sure eventually we're only like what a day into this. So I'm sure the red flags will emerge uh, sooner or later. But it's becoming clear that there are a lot of red flags out there and a lot of people with guns. And uh, the idea that we can come up with a simple rule to, to stop this is just naive, it seems to me. I think that's right. So let's talk about politics then. Uh, what's the uh, what's the next step for this uh, whole debt crisis? I noticed that uh, we we still don't have any actual. I mean, if if the if the account is being held ransom, we need a ransom note. The Republicans have not said what <laughs> it is that they want. So uh, will they at some point? I I assume they have to. The, the interesting thing about this is that you know that. Under Trump, there was really the, the, the Tea Party focus on cutting government, cutting spending disappeared. I mean, t- under Trump, the budget grew. There was no attempt to cut either the big programs like Medicare, Social Security and the Pentagon or the little programs. And we just, you know, they just spent a lot of money and Republicans were fine with that. So now they're, I think, trying to readjust and that some of them want to reimpose the same 
sort of draconian spending cuts that you saw from the 2011 round of the debt ceiling. You know, they want to, you know, cut huge amounts of domestic spending. So like cut the FAA, cut the IRS. Um, But other people, you know, if you're going to make a real dent in government spending, if you're really going to balance the budget, if that's what you want, you got to cut the Pentagon, Medicare and Social Security. And you have Donald Trump out there saying, don't ever do that. Don't ever cut Medicare and Social Security in the Pentagon. So then you're in a position where if you don't cut those three big things that Trump says are off limits, then you got to slash everything else. You know, you can't make small cuts in the FAA. You have to get rid of the FAA. So I think they're having trouble figuring out something that even sounds good on paper that they want to ask for. Um, so I think that's what's delaying this a little bit. Is You're right. The Republicans haven't even really said what their opening did. So I mean, is, does that help them in any way? I, I, even Republican voters, if, if the U.S. Uh, has its credit rating reduced again, which, you, you know, is like burning a billion dollars, um, how does that get them votes? I don't I don't know. There's so little strategy going on now. We've talked about Kevin McCarthy, who's the leader of this Republican effort. He is a classic leader from behind. As I said, he's the cool dad. He's the dad who let you come over to his house and, you know, do whatever you want. He's not somebody who leads. He's not somebody who sets an agenda and tells people, you know, this is what we're going to do. Now get in line. So some uh, somebody else is going to steer the ship. But I'm not clear who that is yet. As you said, nobody's really set up set up an agenda. So I don't know. I think they're going to have a bad political viewpoint if they're holding this thing for ransom and they can't even say what it is they want. Yeah. I see in Florida that uh, Governor DeSantis is making plans to use basically use the covid relief money to give Floridians a tax break. Is are you allowed to do that? (laughs) I don't know if you're allowed to do it. I mean, I think he probably will get the legislature to do whatever he wants. Uh, yeah, instead of using it to, you know, help build you know, infrastructure or whatever else. he, DeSantis has, has got a legislature that does whatever he wants there. And I think he's doing things, you know, that he knows people are going to like and they're going to make news. So I'm not surprised he's doing that. Yeah. And the latest on George Santos, the uh, the liar in Congress. I read <laughs> I read a, it turns out that he once apparently uh, appeared in drag. Right. And I read a headline saying that because of that fact, he is now considered bulletproof. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't think that, I think that's not right. I think it's just okay. another thing that he lied about. So videos came out showing him when he lived in, in Brazil. He's from Brazil, but he appeared in drag and he denied it. And then it turned out that he had appeared many times in drag. Again, just not disqualifying for being in Congress. And for him, it's just another example of him lying about something from his past that was easily disprovable. Yeah, the question here, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to kick him out because he's a he's a reliable Republican vote and a you know and vote for McCarthy at a time when McCarthy doesn't have that many votes. Um, I think that the real sort of strategy here is just wait for him to be indicted, and then he'll, then they can he'll be gone without them having to push him. Isn't he? But but isn't he now like a, a demonstration of the Republican Party's diversity? <laughs> I think I guess you could spin it that way. I think they more they're probably unhappy. Like I said, they don't like to get rid of him, but they're unhappy uh-huh. that that's the headline we keep seeing out of seeing out of the house is what did George Santos lie about today rather than I whatever think. their agenda is. Okay, so just, just to be, be clear, is the, is the there are photos of him in drag, right? Yeah, apparently videos of him in drag. Yeah, okay. And he's now sort of admitted that he did that. Okay, so he's not lying about that. Well, he originally he did lie about it. Originally, he lied and said that he didn't do that. And then oh, he once didn't the videos came out, he said he did. I see. Okay. It's so difficult to keep, to keep these things straight, which is why we have you on every Tuesday, David. <laughs> <laughs> David Thornfeld, the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.